Welcome back to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. Women don't always feel welcome in American mosques and masjids. Those are the houses of worship where often there is a prayer hall and an opportunity to gather in congregation to offer prayers. Some women find that they're just turned away. Others sent to the basement to pray or some other, what they describe as inadequate space, or they're discouraged from engaging and participating in the community and serving in meaningful roles, like on the boards of directors. There are an estimated 2,700 Muslim houses of worship around the country. However, many women are choosing third spaces and other places where they are finding spiritual uplift and support. Mosques can be challenging to find an equal space for some, and that can begin when you're trying to walk in the front door. I'm not speaking theoretically here, friends. I've had this experience. In 2014, a group of Muslim women set out to change that from the inside. Instead of leaving, they weren't going to go anywhere. An instrumental leader in that group is Aisha al Adwia, originally from Alabama. Her journey into Islam occurred during the civil rights era, and it shaped her. Through a series of encounters in Brooklyn, she met members of the Nation of Islam who followed Malcolm, and that began her journey into Islam. Her activism was informed by so many experiences, as producer Monique Parsons brings us the story of a Muslim woman who decided to do something when she was turned away from the mosque. Two women are looking for a place to pray. It's the middle of the day. They just left a restaurant. Somewhere in New York, I think it was like Brooklyn or Queens. I can't remember when I was years ago. That's Sarah Saeed. We heard that there was a mosque nearby where we could go do our prayers. She and her friend Aisha are Muslims who pray five times a day. And while they could do it anywhere, it's a special blessing to pray in a mosque. It's spiritual. So they find the storefront mosque, open the door. But they wouldn't allow us in because the space was only for men. Sarah knows it's wrong. She knows that nothing in Islamic law bars women from entering a mosque. She knows the Prophet Muhammad, a role model for close to 2 billion people, never barred women from entering a mosque. This day, though, she's not up for a fight. Sarah turns to look elsewhere. But her friend Aisha... She said, no, it's, it's our right to go in. We belong here. The prophet would never do something like this. And she proceeded to insist with the male leadership that we were going to go in and pray there. And they allowed her in. And they allowed me in. This is the story of the woman who said no. A Christian from Alabama who embraced Islam and became a role model for American Muslim women. She persuaded men to share space and power in mosques and got women to hold their ground, even when men tried to turn them away. Her name is Aisha Aladawiya. She's 77 years old. You're going to your spiritual dwelling, and to have to enter the door in combat mode is really traumatic. But it's important to stay there, to just walk away and then expect that something is going to change. It's not going to change. You have to go back. You have to stand in the fire. It's been months since she prayed in a mosque because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Virtual meeting software has allowed her to stay busy while she shelters in place. Maybe because she's so often asked her opinion on the topics of the day, the reason for my call amuses her. 
Oh, you want a life story? She's speaking with me from her apartment in Harlem, far from where she grew up. My town is Eufaula. It's about maybe 50 miles south of Columbus, Georgia. It's a small Alabama town on a bluff overlooking a wide spot in the Chattahoochee River. Today, people know it for historic mansions and bass fishing. The mansions date to the 19th century, when Eufaula was a wealthy trading port, built on the labor of enslaved men and women, and led by a powerful faction of secessionists. I was born and raised in that little town. You know, we were raised in the church, the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Aisha, her family, and neighbors inherited a legacy of racial terror. Here's some of what happened in her town. In 1874, white supremacists massacred seven black voters and injured dozens more as they stood in line on Election Day. In 1911, a white mob there lynched a black teenage boy accused of attacking a white woman. During Aisha's childhood, Jim Crow laws and customs enforced segregation and deep inequalities. Still, we were shielded from a lot of the harshness of racism as young children. I have really wonderful memories of my childhood. My community all looked like me, you know, the teachers, the lawyers, the dentists, the doctors, everybody. I think of it as a kind of extended family because we all lived very close together. Her dad was a mechanic. Her mom worked nights at a factory. Aisha was the baby. With her big brothers and sisters, she'd spend all day Sundays at church and join friends for suppers after. This protective network of neighbors, plus the joy she found singing in the church and school choirs, Aisha calls these her love links to her town. The choir especially, the gift of voice, she calls it, shaped her childhood. That might explain what happened the day a white woman told Aisha to get off her property. She was 12 or 13 years old, passing through town with a group of friends. Maybe five or six of us uh, young kids coming from the movie. They stepped onto an unpaved strip. In these small towns at that time, there were no sidewalks. This lady came out of the house, white lady, and really cursed us out and told us to get off her yard and get in the streets. Most of the kids kept walking, but Aisha... I was the one who responded out of all the group that her yard was the street, you know. So, you know, already now this is like taboo. You didn't talk back. For that, she called the police. When the deputies came... She created this yarn, you know, about how we were talking back, how we really just abused her. They wanted me to be quiet and compliant. And instead, I was trying to respond and explain what had happened. And the more I did that, the more I agitated everybody. Deputies took her and a friend to the station where the sheriff was waiting. At one point, he said to me, if you don't shut up, I will take off my belt. Right. And believe me, he could take off his belt, you know, and he could kill us right there on the spot or whatever abuse he wanted to inflict on us as young black kids, he could have. The white woman accused her of disturbing the peace. At a court hearing later, Aisha saw the woman whisper her side of the story into the judge's ear. 
Without explaining what she said, the judge asks Aisha, Is that true? Did I say that? Did I do that? And I'm responding, I don't know, because I didn't hear what she said. It took courage for a Black girl to assert herself before a white judge in the Jim Crow South. Aisha wasn't afraid. In the end, the judge made her parents pay a fine. Aisha can't remember how much it was, but they were poor and it hurt. And I know that was gentle compared to what other young people experience in this environment. As she got older, her parents knew Ufala was not a safe place for their outspoken daughter. So after she graduated from high school, they sent her to live with an aunt in New York City. It was 1962. Two things happened in New York that changed the course of Aisha's life. They involved a barbershop and a bookstore. She kept her hair short, and one day her aunt sent her nearby to get a cut. There in the Bedford-Stuyvesant neighborhood of Brooklyn, Aisha met a group of young men dressed clean as the Board of Health. These were brothers from the Nation of Islam. The men invited her to lectures. She was riveted. She'd always been curious about other religions. She'd tried out the Catholic Church in her hometown, but she left after learning Black people had to enter through a side door. The men from the nation treated her with respect. They took her to lectures, opened her mind to the concept of Black pride, opened her ears to Malcolm X. 20 million ex-slaves are demanding freedom, justice, and equality here in America from their former slave master. 20 million so-called Negroes, second-class citizens, seeking human dignity, seeking human rights, seeking the right to live in dignity as a human being. Aisha had never heard anything like it. This was not a turn-the-other-cheek sermon. This was about her story, her voice. She was young, open-hearted, curious. The message was very powerful, and I was captivated from then on. It was like a re-education that, you know, history didn't start with slavery, you know, that you had a past, a glorious past. That was the magnetism of Malcolm. She got an apartment in Greenwich Village around 1964, less than a block from the apartment where biographer Alex Haley spent hours interviewing Malcolm X. The neighborhood was buzzing with artists, anti-war protesters. And one day, browsing in a famous occult bookstore in the village called Wiser's, she reached for a copy of the Quran. She had friends seeking new religions, meditating, trying out Buddhism. Inspired by Malcolm, Aisha began reading the Quran, began changing her habits. My skirts were getting longer. I stopped eating pork. I had stopped drinking wine. I had stopped smoking. You're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan, and we're hearing from Monique Parsons, who's bringing us the story from our partners at The Spiritual Edge. After Malcolm X was assassinated in 1965, she found her way to a brownstone on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. It was called the Islamic Cultural Center, the original home to what's become the biggest mosque in Manhattan. There were other mosques in the city at the time, Nation of Islam temples too, but she liked that this was a mini United Nations. She met diplomats, students, Middle Easterners, South Asians, Africans— 
A Nigerian befriended her at a potluck there one day. She'd cooked collard greens, an old family recipe from Alabama. Where did you learn how to do this? He, he was flabbergasted. You know? He said, we do exactly like that in Nigeria. She began to understand what Malcolm was talking about, her proud African heritage. She took classes in religion, Arabic, the history of Islam. This is my preparation, you know, for the next step that was to come so that by the time I went to take the Shahada. The statement of belief. There is no God but God and Muhammad is God's prophet. I was already Muslim in my heart. A few years after converting, at a holiday gathering after the fast of Ramadan, Aisha sees a woman she doesn't recognize. She said, well, tell us what brought you to Islam. And when I tell this story, I'm just amazed because I still don't know why I said what I said, but it was what I said, right? And obviously it was my experience. I said, I'm just following Malcolm. A friend points to the stranger and says, Then meet Mrs. Malcolm X. The stranger was Betty Shabazz, Malcolm X's widow. It was like being in the company of royalty. <laughs> she, in her gracious manner, always would cross her heart with her with her right hand and just bow her head slightly and say, Salam Alaikum. That's Arabic for peace be with you. And that was the beginning of the relationship. Years later, when Aisha made her pilgrimage to Mecca, she bought matching necklaces for herself and Shabazz, gold pendants with the image of the Kaaba, the holiest site in Islam. She remained friends with Betty Shabazz until her death in 1997. As a new Muslim in New York City, Aisha found herself at the center of a multicultural community, one deeply intertwined with the story of Malcolm X, the Black Pride Movement, and the struggle for civil rights. She took a job at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture in Harlem, the New York Public Library's Black History Archive, and she remains an institution there to this day. She took weekend classes in Islam with Columbia University students from all over the world. The Schomburg felt like family, and Islam felt like home. What I found that really captured me was this permission, this permission to struggle, to, to fight for justice, right, for what one thinks is right, grounded in a spirituality. And I, for me, that was very profound because, you know, I'd seen struggle before. People do anything to get, you know, the knee off their neck. To heck with ethics or what, you know, it's just by any means and literally. So to come into this awareness that you could do that struggle, right, as an ethical person was profound for me. This understanding led her in 1992 to start Women in Islam Incorporated, the nation's first advocacy organization created by and for Muslim women. I also saw a lot of misinformation about Islam, how Islam treats women, and, you know, who are Islamic women. I felt compelled to find a way to join that conversation because the view 
was and continues to be that Islam oppresses women. Aisha doesn't understand Islam this way. It's men who oppress women. The religion she knew had something to teach those men. She spoke out against domestic violence when many Muslims discussed it only behind closed doors. And she challenged women's second-class status in many mosques, where men sent them to pray in side rooms or behind curtains. Here's Aisha at an Islamic conference in Toronto in 2009. We're taught that in the Prophet's mosque, peace be upon him, there was no wall and there were no curtains. The women were in the same prayer space with the men, the women and the children. And she said out loud to a mixed audience of men and women, converts and cradle Muslims from all different backgrounds, something many women grumbled about quietly. Why do some men usher women to basements or side entrances to pray? Because often brothers don't know what it feels like. When they go into the mosque, it's a beautiful place where they go. It's the lovely carpeting and chandeliers and it's beautiful. And the women are in broom closets. It's such a dishonoring of our women. Really, really, really. It has to stop. If anybody has to go to the basement or to the attic, the men should go. You know, very serious. She was. She knew women were leaving mosques because they felt excluded. I didn't become a Muslim, certainly, to sit in the back of the bus. I grew up in the South. I'm very familiar with the civil rights movement. And I encourage every woman, just say no. As far as Aisha was concerned, the future of their community was at stake. When women don't go to mosques, she said children don't go. When she put it that way, more men started to pay attention. Thank you so much, and thank you all of you for being here. That's Sara Saeed, Aisha's friend from the beginning of this story. It's Labor Day weekend 2015, and Sara and Aisha are at a convention center near Chicago for the annual meeting of the Islamic Society of North America, the nation's largest Muslim group. It's sometimes been hard to get women's issues on the agenda. This year, they got 30 minutes, a lousy time slot, and a side room. Sara's on a stage with a lineup of big-name scholars, preachers, and community leaders. Together, they're launching a campaign for women-friendly mosques. So what does this statement ask us to do? The campaign has three demands. One is to welcome women fully into the mosque. The second thing is to create space for women in the main prayer area. Without any barriers to obstruct their views or hide them from men. And finally... The third thing is that women should be able to participate in masjid decision-making and join the board. This one's about power. In Islam, independent boards of directors run each mosque. They set the budget, set the tone, hire the imam to preach and lead prayers. Aisha is watching from the audience. She knew the statement well because she helped write it. She and Sarah coined the term women-friendly mosque. They'd held workshops at mosques to help them change. Just in case anyone thought the statement was some American feminist thing, Aisha tapped a network of Muslim scholars who rooted it in the religion. Fifteen footnotes cited historical legal decrees, passages from the Quran, 
and meticulously researched examples from the life of the Prophet Muhammad. And in 2019, something extraordinary happened. A council of respected scholars made the statement into a fatwa. That's a very big deal. A fatwa is basically a legal judgment of a particular issue. That's Isan Bagby. He's a professor of Arabic and Islamic studies at the University of Kentucky. He helped write the fatwa, and he helps lead the Women-Friendly Mosque campaign. He's known Aisha for decades. Of all the women out there advocating for the correct position of women in, in the mosque and Muslim organizations, Aisha might be the long-standing, most influential, most listened-to woman out there. There's no supreme spiritual leader in Islam, so the fatwa is not binding. But it's an important tool. The men and women who wrote it have the respect of many varieties of Muslims. If you're pushing for cultural change inside your mosque, it's good the scholars have your back. This is a mosque-by-mosque battle, and it's not over. As recently as a couple years ago, Aisha went to her own mosque in New York City for Ramadan prayers and found... They had the women sitting next to the shoe rack. Where the faithful remove their footwear before they enter to pray? Aisha moved up to a better spot. A man and a woman approached and told her to move back. Aisha sighed and told them, It's not going to happen. Just is not going to happen. If Aisha sounds tired of this, it's because she is. She gets why some women walk away to online prayer and study groups to more egalitarian third spaces, to women's mosques where women lead the prayers. A new study shows that women's prayer spaces haven't improved much in a decade. But the power dynamic is shifting. From Virginia to St. Louis to Los Angeles, never before in history have so many women served on boards of directors of American mosques. I think that if she was a man, everyone would know her name. That's Hind Mackey. She's an activist and educator in Chicago. Aisha inspired her to start a popular social media campaign that highlights women's experiences in mosques. The beautiful, the adequate, and the pathetic, the Twitter tagline says. She calls it side entrance. In this season of pandemic and social reckoning over the value of Black lives, Aisha's on Zoom a lot. Family and friends routinely check in on her. She's working at the Schomburg Center, still delivering speeches, attending meetings in different time zones. She's so busy she doesn't sleep much. In her free moments, Malcolm X's voice fills her apartment. Once you change your philosophy, you change your thought pattern. She's got a collection of his lectures on cassette tapes. His words get her thinking about history. And I think it's the key for our liberation. I don't just mean Black people either, to acknowledge who we are as a people in this country and what has happened. What have we done? What have we been complicit in allowing to happen, right? And what are the struggles that went before us? Aisha watched the street protests following the killing of George Floyd. Her age and her health kept her from joining in, but she wanted to be down there. She wanted to advise the young people in the streets. Some of the young people now think that things just started with them, you know. 
So there's a reminder that no, you know, you know, there are shoulders that you stand on. In order to know that you're standing on shoulders, you have to have an idea about what your history is. That's what she tells Muslims, too. The history of Islam includes so many women scholars, preachers, warriors, leaders, women who advised the prophet, rendered legal rulings, spoke up. There's one uh, verse in Quran that tends to stay with me. And this one talks about standing up for justice, even if it's against your own self, your own family, your own kin, you know, that you're called to do that. This one walks with me, you know. On my computer screen, her face is round and warm. Her voice is full of affection. COVID is keeping men and women from mosques right now, and Aisha can't wait to return. She misses seeing everyone. In post-COVID mosques, she hopes to see many other women, women who sit by each other to pray and teach and govern, women who refuse to give up their ground. For The Spiritual Edge, I'm Monique Parsons. This story was reported by Monique Parsons. It's part of the Sacred Steps series produced by The Spiritual Edge and USC's Center for Religion and Civic Culture. Cheryl Duvall was the Sacred Steps editor for this series. Tarek Fado was the engineer and Judy Silber, executive producer. You can hear other episodes in this series at thespiritualedge.org. That's all for this week's show. If you're interested in learning more about our guests, head over to sign up for the newsletter and take us on the go and share this episode. Just stream us from interfaithradio.org or go to your podcast app of choice and search Interfaith Voices. While you're there, help us out, leave a rating and a review. It helps others find us. This week's episode was produced by myself and Kevin McCarthy. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, for her vision. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices, and we rely on the generous support of our listeners and partners to bring you this show. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Friends, wherever you are, stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. I'll see you next week. <laughs>